Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 126, and today's guest is Melody Ko, partner at NextView Ventures. Melody has a strong mix of professional experience as an entrepreneur, operator, and investor. At Blue Apron, she was the company's first product hire. She went on to lead a 35-person team through the company's hyper-growth years to an IPO. At NextView Ventures, she's part of the team that is redesigning the everyday economy, which we dive into as it's the firm's investment thesis. Melody is passionate about working closely with founders at early-stage companies where she can leverage her experience in things like product, go-to-market strategies, hiring, and more. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like how parenting relates to entrepreneurship. Melody and her husband recently welcomed a newborn son to the world, so congratulations. Her background story and how she landed in venture capital early on in her career and later transitioned into product management. The details of her experience at Blue Apron and the hypergrowth years where she led product design and analytics. Her current role as a venture capitalist and what she is targeting for investments. Advice for founders who haven't made their first product hire yet and finding the right product manager for your company. Tips on how to pursue a career in venture capital and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you might want to add a BizPage subscription. It is our employment branding and hiring solution that helps to keep your company top of mind for our targeted audience of professionals in the tech industry. A BizPage subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our exclusive content series, and so much more. Send an email to info at for more details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Melody. Melody, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'm, I'm excited to talk to you because um, we've got uh, a lot to cover in terms of your career, but there's something really exciting that uh, recently happened. You have an addition to your family. So you, you, you had, a, had a son about four months ago, right? Yes, yes. He's turning four months old in three days. <laughs> wow. So that's exciting. I, I, so I'm further down the path. I have two yeah. girls that are 15 and 13 now. Oh, but... nice. You're, you're, you're the experienced parent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there's all different phases of challenges. Right. So I'm just going to yeah. leave you with that. But, uh, but <laughs> not to scare me away. <laughs> uh, well, but you wrote a great blog post, kind of relating um, parenting with a, a newborn yeah. as it relates to entrepreneurship and kind of what goes along with starting a company. So I thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, it's you know it's funny because that the idea for that post came when I was you know as a, as a newborn parent, you have a lot of idle time because you're feeding your baby all the time. And one of those days, I think probably like month one or month two of his, when, when he was, uh, you know, six, seven weeks old, I was sitting there waiting for him to wrap up. And I thought I suddenly was like, oh, there are actually a lot of parallels between, you know, iterating and figuring out this whole parenting and baby raising compared to building early stage product and company. So that's, that's where that, that, uh, the idea for that post came from. But, um, you know, um, it really is kind of a lot of parallels, one of which, you know, I'm not going to go through the whole post, but um, one thing that I noticed is that you kind of have a game plan and you read a lot about it and you're like, all right, this is how I'm going to go about doing things, uh, building a company or being a parent. And obviously, once you start, you realize that, oh, I have to iterate along the way and things don't pan out usually as planned. Uh, that being said, I still think it's great to have a plan, but you just have to be very adaptive and, and flexible and iterating based on the information you're seeing. 
And the other thing that's very interesting is that, you know, every child's different and I'm sure you have two, right? So one is probably very different from the other. Um, every company is very different. So, and, and in the meantime, you know, parenting is a topic that a lot of people want to share everything that they know about, uh, with you and like, Oh, we did this, we did that. And this worked for us. And similarly, you know, as an early stage founder and, you know, some of the founders I work with have this, you know, problem where they have a lot of great investors on the cap table and surround themselves with a lot of advisors. Everybody has an opinion about how you should go about doing X or Y. In uh, the end of the day, you know your baby slash company the best. So you have to, sure, your job as a CEO, founder, and as a parent is to gather information, but you have to figure out and make a judgment call on like what are the aspects of the stuff that makes most sense for my child or for my company product. So I thought that was very interesting. That's how that post came about. Yeah, and I thought that second point was definitely dead on where you get lots of advice parenting. You have to filter yeah. it based on your own child and put into play the ones that make sense. Same thing with running a company. So I right. definitely thought that was dead on. Whoa. Yeah. Let's rewind the clock back for you. So, uh, so, so where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? I grew up in Taipei, Taiwan. Um, I was there till I was 18 um, as a child. Oh, my God. Um, I was very much like a boy. I like playing a lot of boy stuff. So video games, magic, the gathering cards, uh, assembling race cars, like those little like four wheel drive, you know, cars on running on the track, Lego. I think I had like all like boy toys growing up um, and started playing computer games when I was very young. Um, so, so that was me growing up and I'm very studious and you know, the, the model student from an academic perspective and, um, yeah, that, and I have a younger brother who's five years younger, so we played together a lot um, and fought together, fought, fought with each other, obviously, a lot, too. Um, but, you know, I was, I very much enjoyed, like, uh, kind of hands-on toys and making things and, um, and, 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 like, strategy games and things like that. As you can tell, I was playing Magic. Um, and I also very much like reading, so I read a lot. Uh, like my favorite activity during weekends is like go to the library or go to the bookstore and sit for five hours. And I was like, I made money because I finished three books. And so, so that, that was me in a nutshell and, you know, came to the States for, for college. So I was in Taiwan for 18 years. Yeah. Great. And, and wh why did you decide to go to the university of Virginia and study commerce? Yeah. Um, you know, coming as an international student, I didn't know much about the college system here. And my dad was like, okay, well, picks, you know, pick a public university to apply because I'm not paying for a private university. So like, okay. And I always had this interest, I guess you call it entrepreneurial interest. My, my dad started a company, um, you know, when I was in high school, a soft enterprise software company, he still runs it. He's a CEO, uh, late stage venture backed. Um, so I've like gotten a lot of hearing about that and I would be, you know, trying to figure out how to make money when I was little selling cosmic stickers and stuff like that. Um, and I thought, Oh, maybe I should study business. And so I basically narrowed down a list of public universities. I have an undergrad business program and UVA was one of them. Um, so, you know, the luxury of American, uh, students that you could go campus visiting and, you know, being Taiwan really far away, didn't really have to do, you know, didn't really get to do that. So I applied, I was like, oh, this is cool with a, you know, very pretty campus, Thomas Jefferson history. I love history as a subject when I was little. Uh, so, so yeah, so I just ended up being Charlottesville without sight unseen. So 
that was quite an adventure. <laughs> beautiful campus. I uh, so we went visiting some friends, and it just was near the campus. So it was one of those pristine, perfect spring days yes. where all the kids were out there in the quads and just. Yes. Yes. And my, my you know, 14 year old, now 15 year old daughter was like, I could go to school here. Ah, yeah, yeah, no, UVA is beautiful. Uh, very much enjoyed the experience there. Uh, the undergrad business training was great. Um, you know, I wanted to get, I wanted to kind of build a toolkit. So something that I can like concrete skill set that I can take with me. Um, and so, but it also really good way to like the program was organized because it's a two-year undergrad business program. So you get two years of liberal arts education, and then you get two years of business school training. So I felt that that was a good balance. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't know they did that. Yeah, yeah. So then after graduation, was it? so you moved to New York then? Yes. Yeah, so um, I moved to New York for my first job in investment banking at this firm called Evercore Partners. At the time, they're a so-called uh, boutique investment bank. Now they're still called boutique, but they're really large. Um, my analyst class was eight people. Now they're probably a 50 person, you know, analyst team. Um, I interned, um, you know, with investment banks as well, uh, decided to do that. Honestly, because, you know, the, that's one of the two options that are on campus, uh, consulting or banking. And this is, you know, I graduated in 2007, so a much different era. Um, and I thought, well, you know, at least I built some analytical skill set coming out of that. And that's, that's what led me to New York. Yeah. And then from there, you, you got into venture capital with Time Warner, right? So I thought that was interesting. Like, how did you make the transition into to that industry? Yeah, um, pretty coincidental. You know, I think career path is all about um, kind of accidents and, and, and choices you make that have very, very... Uh, important uh, ramifications down the line. The story there was uh, one of the partners at Evercore I worked for, he covers a lot of the media uh, stuff. And I did good work for him, so he was looking out for me for opportunities. And he said, hey, you're interested in doing going to the investing side and you like digital media. Time Warner has this venture capital group. I was like, I don't know what venture capital is. And, and uh, as it turned out, the one of the, uh, uh, managing directors there, uh, Allison Goldberg, used to work for uh, this partner that I work for. So he sent my CV over there, interviewed, and I was like, oh, I like reading TechCrunch, so maybe this will be fun. And this is 2008, so not many people read TechCrunch, right? And so um, I did, at Evercore, I did mostly uh, what you call tech media telecom stuff. So a lot of the uh, technology deals and media deals. And I just thought that was very interesting. And it was a little bit unconventional career choice because most of my um, analyst classmates uh, from banking all went to like private equity or hedge funds. Uh, but I thought, you know, this sounds like a lot of fun, investing in tiny little startups and why not? So that's how I got there. Got it. Okay. And then you spent some time there, then went back to, to B school and, and got your MBA at Harvard Business School, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, junior, the two years of junior VC thing, uh, Time Warner, it was a great time to be a junior VC in New York because this is 2009-11. The ecosystem then was fairly, fairly small. Um, General Assembly was not a thing, just getting built out by the time it was about to be done. WeWork was not a thing. Uh, there's this thing called New York Tech Meetup that everybody goes Foursquare was just getting used. Uh, so that's kind of the landscape back then. And there were probably 15 junior VCs total across stage, across corporate, 
you know, traditional venture and a lot of us hung out and I got to meet a lot of interesting people at the time. So that was great. Um, you know, so I go back to business school because, uh, you know, I wanted to figure out long-term, like, you know, I like venture. It was like actually really, really fun. I thought, oh wow, this job is so much fun. I stayed as much as I could before, basically quit the weekend before I had to move to Boston. So I was like, I really loved that job, but I also wanted to uh, figure something else out. So I went to business school and basically what happened there is uh, probably like two weeks I got to business school, I had this idea that I wanted to start trying uh, on the you know the other side of the table. You know, as an investor, as a junior VC, you sit at this side of the table listening to ideas all day long, but you don't really know what it takes to build. And I had an idea that was more, it was very personal to me uh, in the wine e-commerce space that I kept talking to people and could not could not get rid of it. So I was like, okay, well, I can do market research all day or I could try to launch it and see if people pay for it. So that me going down the rabbit hole really quickly after I got a business school, start working on something, working on this idea. Yeah. So that was first crush that then evolved to wine me. Yes. So well, the story there was um, first crush was more of a personalized e uh, subscription service for wine delivery. And the idea is that, well, most people go to wine shops. They don't know what they're doing when it comes to picking wine. You have this random salesperson who knows nothing about wine either point you some pretty label and you buy it. So it's a really bad experience and you're making uneducated guesses. And I don't like making uneducated guesses. And I also feel like there should be a way to figure out how to understand your taste palette. The wine buying challenge is because most people don't know how, don't have the vocabulary of describing their palate. So I thought, okay, maybe there's a way to figure that out for people and just send the wine that fit their taste. So that was the basic premise. Um, I teamed up with a classmate of mine uh, and we worked on it. We launched a really, really janky minimum viable product, so to speak, on campus. Uh, for a regulatory reason, we couldn't do it outside of Boston and we're on campus. So we're basically we're selling wine to classmates through a really janky you know, landing page, PayPal thing. And we were delivering, quote unquote, we were like hand delivering bags Drop, the, drop them off uh, in like classmates' seats during lunch hours. And we got yelled at by business, by HBS, because they're like, you can't sell wine in education buildings. So I'm like, okay, we have to set up pickup spots at apartment buildings uh, that are our classmates. Uh, but we had this like very janky MVP that led us to accelerate a program in New York called Dream It. And that was basically my summer between first year and second year. What happened there was uh, my my co-founder decided that she didn't want to be part of this three weeks before demo day, uh, two weeks after we launched. And oh. she's like, well, Melody, I want to go do this other internship in August because I want to like get a real job after school. And I was like, okay. Um, so nice. <laughs> I basically decided that I need to quote unquote pivot into something that's less operationally heavy. Mm -hmm. um, so thus came up with this idea of wine me, which is more of a mobile thing that does not have to carry inventory and do the fulfillment itself. Uh, but originally, because of three weeks from demo day, I thought, okay, I'm not demoing uh, because I just lost my co-founder. And then I came up with this new idea and I came up with a new, sketched it into a prototype and got it built and basically present that on stage. So that was the story. <laughs> and then I went back to school second year and decided that I will do something else after school. <laughs> and you ended up focusing on product management. So, so why product management? Yeah, so from this founding experience and the co-founder breakup, my decision making was, okay, 
if I want to start a company ever again, I try to figure out what skill set do I miss as a solo founder? It because I didn't want to have to rely on someone else. Um, I said, okay, well, I know how to fundraise, obviously, finance. I can figure out operations. I can hack marketing, uh, at least like digital marketing. I'm not a brand marketing expert. Uh, but one thing I don't know, which is critical, anything in technology or technology-enabled business would be how do I build digital products? And so I thought, okay, well, I'm not a CS background, so I can't be an engineer. It's too late for that. So the next best thing is become a product person, so to learn that. Um, so then I decided, okay, coming out of school, I want to learn how to be a product person. So that, that, was, that was the goal. And, and because I think that uh, long-term career in tech, regardless of what I end up doing, um, learning the product chops would be really helpful. And you landed at a great uh, company at the time, Fab, which was just one of the high-flying companies of, of, of the time. So, so what did you learn there? Yeah, so, you know, it, it's really tough to try to be a PM without prior product experience. Um, later, I hired a lot of PMs, as so I know, um, is a catch-22. And uh, Fab actually was a company that I've been tracking for a long time at the time. It they launched the summer before I went to business school. So I've been paying attention to them and, you know, lucky enough that they were hiring a PM uh, when I was looking for a job after business school. You know, the, the, the seven months there really just like product management one-on-one. I got mapped, even though I was pretty junior, I got mapped immediately to a close, like a 15 person engineering team. And so I was able to have very high engineering velocity and build a bunch of stuff. So your basic, like, how do you come up with product features, how do you design the technical design all the way to the user experience stuff, working with engineers, designers, scope things out, driving things to launch, metrics. And so all the, the entire stack from like concept and strategy all the way to, you know, launch and post-launch and iterating. So, so I was really fortunate, um, even though Fab at the time was like going through a lot of turmoil, it was a great first product job uh, to really just get a good training on that. So from there, you went to Blue Apron, which was, you know, this crazy hyper growth rocket ship. And you joined it really, really, well, relatively early. So like 18 months in when there were just 20 people, right? Yeah. So the story there was um, Matt Salzberg, who's founder and CEO. Um, he was, uh, we've, we've known each other since I was in venture because he used to be a VC at Bessemer. And I think some word got to him that, um, I was a product person at the time and they were looking for their first product hire. So he sent me this note, say, Hey, Melody, long time, no talk. I'm now the founder of this thing called Blue Apron and we're looking for our first product hire. And I was like, Oh, I am a customer of Blue Apron. I love you guys. Oh, you were? Wow. Yeah, I was. I've been a customer for Blue Apron for about four months. So I've, I've been a longer customer tenure than I've been employee tenure. Um, so I went in and talked to them over Christmas and then started the following, uh, you know, following February. At the time they were in a co-working space, it's called The Yard, uh, 85 Delancey. And it was, we had like one large conference room, one small conference room, um, three customer service folks. You know, I was the first PM hire. Uh, we had like two people on marketing, the three founders, two chefs. Then that, this is not counting the operations people in the fulfillment center. And a week after I got there, we were too big. So we had to move into our new office in Soho. Uh, and that, but that, that was the early, early, early days. And we, you know, we didn't have company laptops. Everybody brought their laptops to work because we did not have ADP set up. So you cannot leave your laptops in office. So we had to bring everybody wear backpacks and 
brought their own laptop to work for five months and finally we've got company laptops. So that's, that was the early days. Yes. So what were you tackling as a PM, like first PM for this company that, you know, is on the cusp of just starting to really, really, you know, grow aggressively? Like what were you tackling? Yeah, you know, so um, basically at the time we have three engineers, not counting Ilya, the co-founder CTO, who I reported to. Um, they end up hiring two people. So me and three days later, another PM joined. Uh, Dan Cook, who later became uh, director of product on my team. So the way we split, we had this long list of things that we want to build. Um, so I roughly took on 90% of our consumer features and Dan took on 90% of our operations warehouse management system features. And we just like went down a list one at one at a time. Um, and, you know, it's actually a huge focus. So I built, built a bunch of stuff for us, like uh, from the entire kind of um, order management, uh, you know, recipe choices, digital experience, first mobile apps, um, the kind of the meal selection algorithm and that user experience, some of our, you know, warehouse management system tools. So like, we don't have to go into too much detail because it gets very complicated. But for example, one tool is like, this is how, kind of like a QA system for how our pack line uh, organized themselves and making sure that all the boxes are packed for the right, pickup times technically called pull time uh, can get audited and like saved in the system. So like this is kind of, it, Blue Apron is one of those companies that's really tricky to figure out what product is because digital product, because most of the complexity is underneath the tip of the iceberg. Um, if you're not a subscriber, you never really interact with any part of the digital experience, but it's, it's actually pretty complicated because this is not a traditional e-commerce stack. So you can't just plug into a Shopify. So everything from, um, the sign-up flow, the marketing funnel to how a user is associated with the order, is associated with the subscription that gets passed to um, the buying team, the purchasing team that buys like pallets and pallets of ginger that is part of a recipe and that all gets fulfilled in the warehouse management system. All that entire stack is homegrown. So that's the, that's the scope of digital product. Um, you know, I was there for three and a half years. So starting as an individual contributor, about eight months in, we've grown to from three engineers to 20 engineers, four product people, including me. And Ilya one day was like, uh, I think we need to head a product and do you want to be one? And I was like, okay. Um, so we worked towards that and I, you know, start taking on more management responsibility um, and building on the product team. And eventually I was also managing our loan designer at the time. In the early days, I was scoping out everything in wireframes and salmon stand. So our spec looked like I was doubling as a UX person, basically, even without proper UX training. And so finally start building our product design team as well. And fast forward, my last year there, I took on our analytics team, which at the time was a team of three and that built up to a team of 15. So when I left, product management was about 12, 13 people uh, with you know, a head of consumer, a head of operational software and PMs underneath them. I have a head of design who has a team of like six, seven product designers and then a team of analytics and data scientists, uh, about 15 people who's responsible for all company-wide metrics and more advanced data science, predictive analytics stuff all the way to, hey, this is like we're running a product experiment. Here's our A-B test results and how should we look at the data to marketing funnel. So it's a pretty wide range of stuff. Yeah. And the marketing funnel is something I was curious about. So at what point was that like inflection point that all of a sudden that hyper growth customer acquisition just started to ramp up and 
Uh, to be honest, like the minute I got there, uh, so this is like not to my the credit is not me. Um, you know, at the time the business was already growing like at a very rapid clip. Um, the team was really small, but you know, it's a lot of actually at the time it was mostly organic. Um, it was referral based. It was large largest channel for a very very long time. So our job, you know, my job in the very early days is like catching up. And we're perpetually catching up for a very, very long while, um, which is a good problem to have. Yeah. And the company eventually went public. So what was your biggest uh, takeaways from that, you know, coming in at the relatively early stages of a business and just seeing it go through that rapid expansion and and leading product? Yeah. You know, um, so I would say that like Believe Run grew really quickly. Um, I don't necessarily think that, um, you know, I think we might have benefited from growing slightly less quickly uh, because the reason I say that is because one, it, I think it's just this, our successes attract a lot of competition and the space got really crowded. And eventually, I think it was very confusing for customers because you don't have enough time to differentiate, to like kind of articulate your product differentiation from like an actual offering uh, perspective. But I don't know to what degree we had control of that. Uh, now, you know, I think we will definitely benefit from growing slightly less quickly because, you know, company is, is a kind of a living or, organ, organism, right? So like you have people and you have to do things. That's, that's what company is. When you are hiring at such a rapid clip, you know, when I was, when I joined, we're 20 people corporate. When I left, we had 500 people corporate. I ran a team of 35 people that did not exist even two years prior to I left. I hired all of these people. Uh, so when you're bringing on like this headcount that I, I describe it in a way as like headcount is like gravity that just pulls you down and is really, really difficult. And it requires a lot of leadership thought to really think about how to scale your company and culture in a way that you can continue to execute at the same velocity and you cannot get bogged down by it. layers of decision-making because suddenly there are 20 people in the room as opposed to a year ago, the same topic required five people. Um, so I think that's really difficult. It's not, you know, I think most companies don't know how to do that well, uh, because it's everybody's first time, but having gone through that as that's very fascinating. And, and I know it's a big challenge for scaling businesses, but at the same time, you know, I feel incredibly lucky because I've got to see something that, you know, scale to a mass market brand and how to do that. Um, and, uh, hopefully those lessons are, are helpful is, you know, now I'm in this side of the, the, back to this side of the table again, to try to guide, you know, early stage companies through, hopefully eventually that's a good problem to have for them uh, as they, as they kind of find product market fit to get there. But it's learnings of many different levels from, uh, you know, being a people leader to kind of seeing how companies should like build uh, infrastructure, so to speak, uh, to support that scaling to how to build a consumer product and brand that, uh, is mass market ready. Yeah. So now that you are back on the investment side as a partner at NextView, how do you think, you know, cause you were in VC before, but you know, now you've, you know, uh, saw, you know, this experience as a product manager, hyper growth, you know, leading a very substantial product team. How do you think that's translated into, you know, your work as an investor now? Um, let me see. So I guess a couple of things. Um, one, you know, from 
I, I identify myself as a, as a product person. Um, so my bias looking at companies is I, I try to think about the user experience a lot. By user experience, I don't mean just design. I meant what is the pain point that exists for this user? How does this user experience your company service product? And does that entire journey make sense to me? And are you providing kind of a, uh, a dramatic improvement to their current alternative? So I focus a lot on that and, and I try to drill in a lot on that. And that is okay of a question even if you don't have a product yet because as a founder, you can articulate what that might look like. And I'm looking for insights that makes your product journey stand out, so to speak. Um, so I think that's one. The other thing is, you know, as an, as an investor, uh, how I work with companies, right? I have more recent operating experience. I mean, all four partners in next few, we've all been a founder slash operator at one point, uh, but I have the most recent. So my muscle memory is still fairly uh, recent and strong. And I think with that, it can be more helpful uh, thinking, that, you know, strategizing and thinking about like tactical stuff. Uh, could be very tactical all the way to like, hey, let me help you kind of think about your product roadmap. How do you actually design this experience all the way to the other thing I've done a lot at Believer was hiring, building a team. And so team building is everybody's number one priority. Without team, you don't do any work. And so I spend a fair amount of time with, you know, CEOs and founders I work with to help them think about that as well. Um, so. Well, let's talk about NextView. Uh, you know, NextView has a very specific investment thesis that you call the everyday economy. So, so, so what does that mean? Yeah, you know, I think this uh, it's, a, it's a thematic lens through which we look at the world. Um, and what that everyday economy means to us really, there are many aspects of everyday people's lives that are important. Important in the sense that you spend a lot of time and or money uh, thinking about and, and solving problems for it from home to health to transportation to how you work uh, to food just to name a few examples and we're looking to partner with founders that are leveraging technology to redesign how these things are done hopefully for the better um, so that yeah you know like the, the the manifestation of that could be something very technical uh, like autonomous vehicle or it could be something very consumery so to speak like um, you know, an e-commerce company or even something that's like a consumer marketplace uh, for, for a specific vertical. So, but, you know, our, our belief is that internet still has a lot of uh, potential to, you know, the next 20, 25 years to be the, the backbone for uh, innovation as opposed to, you know, oh, let's move on to like go for some other new paradigm that doesn't exist yet. Well, you brought up the uh, autonomous driving. So very timely being that one of your portfolio companies, Optimus Ride, is going to be providing transportation. Oh, yeah, that's right. They just launched um, earlier this week in Brooklyn Navy Yard. So, yeah, so it's, 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 it's becoming real. It's actually happening. We've been waiting for yeah, hearing about for years and years, but this is actually going to be a real life scenario where it's actually happening and providing transportation. Yeah, you know, it's still obviously very early stage. Um, because they're providing transportation in a fairly uh, confined environment. But it's very cool to see. I have not had a chance to check it out, but I absolutely um, saw my to-do list, hopefully, uh, for a not-too-distant future. Now, is there a specific 
focus that you're targeted on within the everyday economy, like the investments that you're specifically targeting? No, you know, I would say all four of us, uh, the partners here at Next Year, we're all journalists. I would say, you know, I everybody gravitate towards things that um, they're interested in. Thus far, so I've made, you know, five investments since I got here, and they range from something in, you know, marketplace in real estate to, uh, you know, like a telemedicine stack for skincare to something that's like a personal finance fintech uh, focusing on student loan. So I would say it's less about like specific verticals, more around, you know, whether the problem, going back to kind of as a someone with a product background, like what resonates with me, like whether there's a big, uh, big pain point and how are you as a founder can provide a unique insight and a unique solution in the marketplace. But I would say, you know, I've looked at a fair amount of B2B enterprise stuff, haven't done any investments there. That's not to say that I won't, uh, but so far I've leaned more towards consumer facing products and services. And what's the best way to get on your radar if there's an entrepreneur that's, you know, has an interesting idea um, you know, what's the best way to, you know, get together with you? And then what do you expect out of that, you know, very first meeting with an entrepreneur? Yeah, you know, I say, um, we, you know, I think that most venture, most VCs say this similar thing. Um, you know, warm intro is definitely, uh, you know, we, we get in as a C stage investor, uh, your inbox is crazy. So, um, if you could get a warm intro, it's like a signal for us, for us, I should prioritize that. Right. So I, I was definitely recommend that. Um, now, that being said, I recognize that, you know, sometimes you just don't have overlapping network. Right. So, you know, we all of us block and tweet. And so we're present on social media. So that's another good way to get in touch. In terms of first meeting, um, you know, a couple of things. One, obviously, articulate the problem that you're trying to solve really well. Right? Like investors need to become convinced. One, they're like, oh, this is a market segment or market uh, problem that is interesting and large enough and then they have to be convinced that you as a founder or a founding team is uniquely equipped to solve this problem and then so then let's go to figure out so the market the pro the people and the team and then finally what exactly is your product or your proposed solution and can i be convinced that that makes sense but the very first thing to me is like what is the market to try to go after? And is that an interesting market uh, or a specific segment of it? And founder market fit is, is very important as well, both from a skill set perspective as well as whether you have a unique insight. Now you have a lot of experience and you just highlighted this, that you know, one of the things that you can help out with is, uh, is hiring and building a team. So uh, what advice do you give to founders that, uh, haven't made their first product hire yet? Like when should they make their first product hire and what type of person should they be thinking about for that hire? Yeah. So I wrote a post on this, um, I think last year. Um, so, you know, I, I say that like, in, 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 you know, when is the right time? I mean, obviously it depends on the founding team composition. If you have someone who's more, has more of a product background, you can really make that person that had a product for a while but if that person is also a CEO, this person is going to be really busy, has other CEO duties. Um, you probably need to hire someone when you feel like you no longer know why certain things are getting prioritized and what your team is building. Um, because that's where a PM can come in and say, and help you. A PM's job is to make sure that at any given moment, 
the engineering resources spent on the single most important thing that a company can be doing. If it's working on something else that is not going to be as high impact, well, you're prioritizing wrong. Um, so, so that's a really helpful way to think about it. So if you feel like you're losing control of that, uh, or that if you as a CEO are spending time specking things out, it's probably not the best use of your time. And you should you know, consider bringing someone in who is full-time focusing on that because engineer resource is very costly and especially at early stage and wrong deployment of that can cost you six months of runway of going nowhere. So, so I think that's the, that's the way to think about like trade-off. Um, in terms of like advice for hiring, you know, um, this is not just for PM in general, but just like any role you got to, you know, whether you're a founder CEO or you're a hiring manager in general, you got to always, your mentality should be always be hiring. Um, because you are always building a talent pipeline that you might not be able to act on this person for six months, or this person might not be available for a year or whatnot. But especially as an early stage startup, you have you you can't compete on brand and you can't compete on cash. So it is especially important for you to uh, always be building a talent pipeline and and kind of have it more of an advanced planning habit. Because the other thing that a lot of people don't realize, uh, if they lack experience on hiring, is that by the time you put out, you know, let's say, oh, I need this role right now, and to this person is sitting here and the seat is warm, probably takes six to nine months. And the more senior it gets, the longer it takes. And so what do you have to do? So ideally, you can work backwards six months uh, from that point and say, ah, I anticipate this such hire need to sit at the seat and warm. The seat is warm. So let me get started on my networking and getting the JD out, tapping my network, because you know the talent market is competitive as an early stage, you know, company. You are especially at its disadvantage. Yeah. Now, how, how do you know what type of product manager you should hire initially? Like, there's different types of backgrounds, right? There's more the technical product manager. There's more the design oriented product manager. Maybe even more the growth marketing oriented product person. So, like, does it just purely depend on the business? Like, I just I don't know if. Um, you know, all entrepreneurs that know that there's different types of product managers out there. You know, it depends on, depends on the company, right? Depends on the need. Um, it's, a, it's a tricky thing because like you said, I, they're not necessarily different types. It's just PMs that just have different experiences, um, different seniority levels of experience, large company PMs, very different than like, you know, you have PM at uh, tech, large tech company X, you're managing like tiny little piece of thing on this giant product. Sure, you're, 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 the benefit is that you have like uh, large company training, but the flip side is that you might not be used to, you have to be your own data scientist writing SQL queries, you have to be your own UX designer, you have to like also review code and on GitHub review pull requests. So I think the, you know, I don't have a very kind of formula answer to that other than saying that you have to understand uh, what are the skill set gaps that you have at your particular company at this moment, right? Is it more of a business C lens thinking about uh, prioritization and, and is it more uh, gap on the technical side, right? Uh, because the good way to think about a general product person skill set is kind of the Venn diagram of design, business, and technical. So 
depending on where your existing team's uh, gap is, you might anchor for someone who's like more businessy or more designy or more technical so that to fill the gap. So that together with the existing designer or engineer on the team, you can have a pretty seamless spectrum of skill set to cover what you need to do. Now, you're, you're a partner at NextView Ventures. So you're a, a woman partner in the world of venture capital, which we need more of. <laughs> so, so what advice would you give to other women that are looking to pursue uh, you know, a career in venture capital? Uh, um, well, even if that question is framed as general advice, regardless of gender, is a really tricky answer. Um, I would say, you know, if you're, so I think two classes of answer. One is if you're currently a junior VC and the other is if you're not, if you're currently a junior VC, I think it's really just be excellent at, you know, bringing value to your current firm, uh, based on the role and scope that you have. And, um, and think about how you differentiate in terms of your value add both to the firm as well as to the founders and the companies that you meet slash work with. Uh, because end of the day, you know, the very, very long term, it's about your network and your ability to see deals, uh, have good judgment and be able to win deals. And so that those are the things that end of the day matters as a, as a VC. And, you know, if you're a current non-partner VC at a firm, you have at least a platform to try to execute and hone your skill set on some of that. If you're not currently an investor at a venture firm, um, I would say, you know, kind of along the similar lines, right? Like your current work experience and professional experience, how do you build skill sets that potentially could be useful and helpful for, um, you know, helping companies execute or building unique notes in a network so that you can see deals that other people might not be able to see uh, as quickly as you have, or you have a unique insight and thesis that you're developing that, uh, gives you a different uh, level of judgment on certain sectors. And that could be a value add eventually to uh, the firm that you want to join and be part of. So I'm always looking for new um, book recommendations or podcasts that, uh, that you're lis listening to. So any recommendations, they can be business or just purely for fun. Doesn't have to be always business. Yeah. Um, let's see. So my, the most recent book I read that is not a baby or parenting related book <laughs> um, is this book called Boomtown. Um, it's a, kind of interesting. So I love NBA. My husband and I watch basketball a lot. Um, and Boomtown is about Oklahoma City and Oklahoma City Thunders. And it's kind of a wacky book because it's intertwined with the Oklahoma City's history and how Oklahoma City Thunder got to this tiny little town and can support an MBA team. And so this book is only interesting if you kind of like history and you like MBA. Um, because half of the stuff is talking about James Harden, the beard, and uh, you know, board, uh, what's his face, uh, Kevin Durant and all that stuff mm -hmm. uh, in the early days. But it's kind of fun. Um, I will provide another book in case listeners are not MBA fans. <laughs> this other book, I read last year, uh, probably somewhat relevant to the audience called Netflix. Um, the Netflix X, well, Netflix is known for a wacky, very distinct culture, kind of like Bridgewater. Um, their pre, their ex chief people officer wrote this book 
that went into a lot of details, both on like the early days of next week's next Netflix's founding and the ups and downs. At one point, people don't remember their stock price was down in the toilet. Um, and, you know, everybody thought Blockbuster would kill them. So it's a very interesting kind of history to see innovation and how they managed to do that internally and also a more detailed articulation of their extreme version of the culture, which is pretty fascinating. Um, yeah. I've heard amazing things about that book and I've, I've uh, heard the, the writer, uh, Patty McCord, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So I've heard her uh, on different podcasts and wow, talk about just an amazing uh, level of just transparency that she shares yes. on yeah. podcasts and how they just pulled no punches at Netflix. It was just like very, we expect you to do X and you come in, you do X and if yeah. you're not going to do X, you're not going to be here. And it was very like, very yeah. simple. Yeah. Uh, and you know, obviously, it worked for their culture and, and right. the rest is history. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much, Melody, for taking the time to walk us through all of the great things that you've done throughout your career, and of course, what you're doing now as a as a partner at Nextview Ventures. And of course, you know, congratulations on the addition to your family. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFiz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.